Hello humans of triathlon and welcome back or welcome to the hot podcast where we bring you the ordinary but extraordinary world of triathlon one human one story at a time with the aim to inspire and to celebrate this life-changing sport and its humans through real authentic raw and enjoyable conversations with triathletes from around the globe and from all walks of life I'm Swapnil Chauhan here with my co-host Charles Hunk and Radmom Robin along with another amazing guest. Yeah, we've done a lot of pretty incredible podcasts on this show with athletes who have totally blown me away with their dedication and their inspiring stories. Uh, I'm going to tell you, this is one of the first times I've felt like I just don't have enough superlatives in my vocabulary to describe our guest. He was one of the first people I really started following on Instagram that just amazed me on a daily basis. We can all imagine or have actually experienced what it takes to finish an Ironman, but very few of us know what it takes to make the podium at Kona, and almost none of us can picture what our guest today has gone through. He came back from a near-fatal injury that left him paralyzed and with a host of other issues, including quite literally not having a stomach, and also suffering from his, what he calls his biggest foes, depression and anxiety. He found the sport of triathlon, which showed him a path to leaving antidepressant medications behind and gave him a focus for his incredible energy and drive. In one year, he went from learning to swim, mastering competing in hand cycle and push rim chairs, to entering his first triathlon, which was a 70.3, finishing first in the hand cycle division, qualifying for nationals, then qualifying for worlds, and then became the 70.3 world champion in the hand cycle division. And if that is not enough, he will hopefully tell us about his epic battle for the podium slot at Kona this year, which is kind of its own iron war-like saga. And truly, he gave his all at the finish line, if you see the photo. So following this incredible achievement, he uses success and his work ethic from Ironman to start training with Rewalk Robotics, which has enabled him to walk again. Really, I can't imagine any more compelling story than that of the man who goes by the Insta handle, Pigs Will Fly, I Can Try, Mr. Daniel Garcia. Welcome. Man. Welcome. Thank you for having me. It's absolutely our pleasure. Like Robin just mentioned, you are a huge inspiration to the whole community and everyone in it. So thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much. Okay, so we like to get things going with this question, which is, let's say you were to write a book about your life and you could start that book from any point of your life. Which point in time would you like to begin the book with and why? I believe I would start it when I had my injury back in 2010, mm -hmm. uh, just because it was a life-changing experience. Completely, you know, a lot of people don't realize uh, paralysis. It's not only the inability to walk. It's also the loss of bowel, loss of bladder, function, um, pain. There's uh, depression. So there's so many things that, that are a part of a a paralyzed individual that most people don't realize. And um, so that was uh, where my story would probably start. So if you don't mind, could you explain to us or describe to us what the incident was and how it happened? So I was working on a, a power line pull and um, I was uh, nearing the very top of the power line pull. And um, 
I don't know if you're familiar with it, but typically you wear what are called gaffs, which are spikes on your on your boots to climb up a pole. And you you have a belt mm. that goes around your waist and it goes around the, the pole to prevent you from falling back. So as I was nearing the top of the pole, it, it gets very narrow up there. So to prevent myself from gaffing myself, which, which is very common, you know, it gets so narrow up there that you, you end up spiking your own uh, leg. Yikes. You know, I was, I was paying attention to my feet and trying to climb up this very narrow part of the pole uh, without realizing how high up the pole I was. And so when I got to the very top, you know, I went one, two, belted up, but there was no more pole to belt up to. And I went over and uh, literally fell from the top of the pole on my back. The last thing I remember was um, looking at the sky and just uh, falling. Yeah, the people that were there that I've talked to, because I don't remember two weeks after the fall and the people that I, that I've spoken with have told me that, um, basically I, when I hit the ground, I tried to get back up and then blood just started pouring out of my mouth and and I was out. Wow. Yeah. So that was it. And you know, it's, it's, my story is so, it's so long and, um, it's, uh, (laughs) I don't know if you have time for it, but, uh, (laughs) Yeah, the the whole, you know, literally, I go to the emergency room, they they do the reconstructive back surgery. And, um, you know, they miss all my internal injuries. Um, I don't know if if they it was intentional. But uh, I still had feverish symptoms. And uh, so after my reconstructive back surgery, I was sent into a convalescent home, basically. And Literally, I was sent there to die because I had a ruptured esophagus, ruptured lung, ruptured stomach. Uh, my diaphragm was destroyed, and uh, none of these uh, issues were were um, attended to. You know, and, wow. and and while at the at the convalescent home, you know, the they were instructed to feed me and and give me fluids. And two weeks being there. I literally almost drowned from my own fluids. I had a liter and a half of fluid in my left lung uh, drowning. And I had to be rushed to emergency again, where they had to puncture that lung and uh, extract all that fluid. So it was a a interesting uphill battle from the start. That's crazy. So obviously that's some... really intense stuff do you have do you have any recollection of what your thoughts were during that whole period what like where your mindset was at yes i i actually i remember that like if it was yesterday it's so you know as as we talk about you know all the brain injuries that i've had and and this one was the, the biggest one but i can remember that like if it was yesterday and i remember i remember the day i was dying and my family was there and uh, uh, I was in so much pain, and the the nurse had just given me morphine, and I I was screaming from the top of my lungs, uh, "Give me more! I'm uh, you know I'm hurting," and and um, and so 
the the nurse wouldn't give me any more morphine and she wouldn't call the ER either. And that's what we couldn't understand. You know, did, 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 did the insurance send me here to die? Uh, basically, um, my life wasn't worth saving. Mm. And so, so, so the, the, the nurse would not call the, the, the ambulance. So my family had to uh, get involved and call the ambulance. And um, from then on, you know, I had to uh, fend for myself, basically, uh, with friends and family that I knew that worked in medical facilities and basically get away from the insurance umbrella because I knew there was something uh, going on here. How do you ignore feverish symptoms? And, you know, I even have all my medical records that say that when I was post-reconstructive uh, back surgery, I was complaining about my left lung hurting and not being able to breathe but they never addressed those issues. Um, maybe it was cheaper just to let me die than to save my life. So I, I remember that day where I was lo- I was dying and I remember, you know, praying for death, basically. I was in so much pain. I remember screaming and praying for death. And, and um, yeah, that's one thing that I, I, I don't forget. It's, it's like tattooed. In I the can imagine. Yes. Oh, like I have the chills right now. Like it's yes, crazy. It's crazy that you had to endure that. That is just so horrible. Yes, and I remember uh, I was rushed to the emergency room, and you know it was they needed to get that fluid out. They didn't even anesthetize me. They just punctured me. They stabbed me in oh. the in the back twice, and they stabbed me in the in the uh, on the side by my ribs and. Basically, you know, it was all done just to, to save my life. And I felt all of that. <laughs> and, uh, oh, I can imagine. So, wow. yeah, it was uh, this, yeah, something you don't forget. It's, it's amazing. So you are a far tougher human than we even could imagine when we started this podcast. Wow. I, uh, I was forced. So what, what? After going through that, I imagine there was a long healing process that you went through. Yes, um, I was in the hospital for four months. Wow. I, you know, um, prior to falling off that that pole, I weighed 180 pounds, and you know, at the time, I was a, a competitive bodybuilder. Oh, okay. Uh, and I was pretty, I was pretty solid at 180 pounds. A lot of muscle. Yes, I had a lot of muscle. So uh, a few months into, I think it was uh, two months uh, post-fall, first time I'm able to look at myself in the mirror. And I ended up weighing, you know, 115 pounds. Mm. Wow. I, I atrophied so bad and I didn't even recognize myself. The and, and, you know, I was depressed as soon as I saw myself. I couldn't, you know, what happened to me. And, um, you know, the doctor said to me, if, if it weren't for that muscle mass, you wouldn't be here today. So, um, yeah, you had that bank of, of solid muscle. Yes. It, it, it cushioned the to, to draw on. <laughs> wow. But, so you also had an athlete's mindset before this happened. Like you knew how to make your body work hard. Did that help at all as you started to recover? Yes, definitely. Um, so I, I, I was never uh, an endurance athlete. Um, I was, uh, like I said, a bodybuilder. And so 
but yeah, I had the work ethic, you know, the, 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 I, I knew the importance of diet, nutrition and hard work. And so while in the hospital, actually, I remember wanting to go to the gym as soon as I was able to sit on a wheelchair and, um, hmm. You know, it was it was an uphill battle uh, because I couldn't even raise my arms uh, up. I was uh, so atrophied and weak. It's so amazing how quickly our bodies just atrophy. And I had to work on just being able to lift my, my arms up above my head. Wow. Going from lifting lots of weight to, to lifting your arms. <laughs> yes. So how did you get through that mental component of of basically being taken down to the starting line the starting block again how did i get through that yeah like what what did you you know was there something that that kind of carried you through or or that you could kind of draw on that that helped you get through that time you know um it, it at that point it's it's difficult to to be motivated to kind of say like, uh, or, or, or to, to be optimistic about the future. Mm -hmm. Um, because, uh, right off the back, the doctors tell you, uh, you're never going to walk again. Um, uh, actually they told my family, I wasn't even going to live through this. So, um, from when, you know, this all started, I was, from what I can remember, I was told I wasn't going to have movement from the neck down. And then little by little, I, I regained movement. And then I was told I was going to be a complete paraplegic. And then, you know, little by little, they kept telling me things that I wasn't going to be able to do. So it's it's kind of hard to, to be optimistic about the future when they're telling you something's not possible. But deep down, I, I always knew, you know, with hard work, um, anything's possible. So were there even people around you that... You know, some people, obviously, the doctors were saying all these things, but there were, were there other people who were, like, supporting you, motivating you, and helping you get back? Uh, yes, my family, uh, my brothers were there all the time. And they, they my brothers knew my, my work ethic. Mm. And and uh, actually, one of my brothers uh, post-hospital, uh, you know, he, he took time off, and he uh, he came to the gym with me to help build back. And so, yes, my, my brother, Sam actually, uh, was there to help me get back. And, um, that was, uh, definitely motivating when I started seeing my body coming back after leaving the hospital. So after the doctors told you all of these things, bad things, you're never going to be, be able to do this, you're never gonna be able to do that, blah, blah, blah. And suddenly, so I guess my question is what were the first things that you noticed that you were able to dispel the myth about things that the doctor told you you couldn't do but you actually were starting to do and how did those little first things make you feel so i started noticing so when he said uh when when they said i was going to be a quad i started moving my arms right hmm. and so so that was uh you know, false. And then when they said I was going to be a complete paraplegic, I I noticed I had uh, feeling in parts of my legs uh, because they do a test where they prick you with uh, pins. Mm -hmm. 
And so I had feeling along my quads and my inner thighs. I didn't have feeling anywhere else on the legs, but I had those two. And so uh, with those two, I was able to slightly move my legs, but there was something there. The, the connection was still there. And so with, with my knowledge in, 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 in muscle building, you know, I know when a muscle is weak, um, you can always strengthen it and, and build it back up. And as long as that connection is there, you have that. That was my motivation, basically. Have you mailed like a picture of you at the finish line back to your doctors? (laughs) (laughs) Send them some Christmas cards. (laughs) I've I've had so many doctors uh, that I don't. I was in so many institutions actually uh, when my injury happened that I don't even um, remember. Uh, the names of the doctors or whatnot, or I don't even know if they would remember me because I was only there briefly. Hmm. Seems like they could stand to hear that. I, it just seems so hard to believe that they would just tell somebody right off the bat what they can't do. And you've certainly proved that that's kind of a foolish thing for them to do, maybe. Yes. And, and actually, if you talk to any uh paraplegics you know they'll tell you the same thing uh that the doctors will tell them i I don't know if that's something they have to do but yeah they do (laughs) that's one thing they do tell all of us so when you were getting back into your you know into your rehab was were you getting into it more with the mindset of i want to get my body back or did you know that you know when you worked out you had you you felt a lot better mentally and that would help you you know, progress. Yeah. So, so at that point getting out, I didn't really have enough strength in my legs to do anything with them. So it was just a matter of building my upper body back Mm -hmm. to basically help, help move my lower body around. Basically, you know, a lot of, you, you have to do a lot of transfers where you need to use your arms, you need to be able to use your arms to to roll yourself on the wheelchair. So definitely uh, upper body strength is important. So uh, that was my goal to build my my upper body back up. And uh, yes, that's that's exactly what I did. I, I went in with the intention of building my upper body back. And then, you know, the, the legs didn't come until uh, way after. Mm-hmm. So talk us through your sort of introduction to endurance sports. So I, um, one of my, um, actually while I was in, in rehab, uh, I had what's called a, um, recreational therapist and he introduced me to a hand cycle. And so I, I put in for a hand cycle, you know, to, to use for aerobic exercise, and uh, fortunately, I was uh, I was uh, able to acquire one, and um, and so that's where I started using, you know, uh, for my I would do my weightlifting, and then I would use my hand cycle for aerobic exercise, and uh, you know, then I started seeing, you know, other other athletes, you know, using the hand cycle to compete in marathons and so, and, and in wheelchairs. So then I, I decided, you know, to, to sign up for my first marathon 
I believe it was Long Beach, Long Beach Marathon, and I did it on my hand cycle. And you know, when I saw other other people in my position, I was uh that that uh, competitive uh, spirit came out, <laughs> and so I wanted to take it a step further, and and you know, and so then that's when I I started looking more into the sport. And I came across a story by uh, Carlos Molina and uh, David Bailey, who were two paraplegics as well, who basically had a rivalry uh, back in, uh, in, in, in Kona. And so they had one of the biggest rivalries in Ironman history, and, and, and they were both paraplegics. So I read their story, and you know I was inspired. And I said to myself, "This is this is what I want to do," and um, and that was it right there. Once I made my decision. So, what was that whole process like of getting into endurance sport? Like, there's so much involved. Like, there's the equipment. There's and seriously, the craziest thing to me about your whole story was the fact that you, that you don't have a stomach. I mean, when I first read that, I didn't even know that was actually like possible. <laughs> So, I mean, I'm sure that brings a whole whole bunch of, you know, complexities and stuff into it. So, how, how what was your journey into endurance sport like? Yes, definitely. It was, um, it was definitely difficult. And um, unfortunately, there aren't very many resources that one could uh, yeah. seek out for, 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 you know, for someone in my situation. It's, it's uh, very different than that of... Uh, an able-bodied triathlete, extremely different. And so, you know, I, I, I did all the research I could online, but the one thing was, you know, I've never swam before, even as an able body, And that was definitely my biggest challenge is even getting across a 25-yard pool was definitely a challenge. I didn't know how to go about doing it. Breathing, I didn't know anything. And so... Uh, the other thing is uh, the push rim wheelchair. That was another uh, beast in its own because you have to get the right fit. And all these, all this equipment is, uh, they're one-offs. You know, they're custom built. Oh, wow. And you need to know that, yes, they, you need to know how to fit in them. Like, uh, literally, I have, I, I, it took me four different wheelchairs to finally get it right. And even the one that I use for Kona is still too big for me. I still need to trim it down oh, for it yeah. to be just right. So it's, it's yes, it's, it's, it's definitely a, a challenge. Um, when I started, there wasn't any resources whatsoever. Um, but now, you know, little by little, uh, more and more people have made it more um, accessible. And, and, and organizations as well. So, so how does using a, a push rim racing wheelchair differ from one that you would get around in every day? So the the racing wheelchair has a, so you're sitting on your knees basically. Mm. And uh, you're, you're, um, you have three wheels instead of two. Right. And so, so your body's in a different position entirely then. Yes, yes, definitely. And so you wear uh, what are, are they're called um, either harness gloves or, or hard gloves. But the whole point, uh, the difference between the manual uh, uh, everyday chair and the racing is um, 
with a manual chair, you push, you grab the rim and you push. But with the push rim, you, you need to strike the rim. So it's a rubber coating on the rim and your hands, uh, you have a rubber glove and you just strike mm. it. So it's, a, yeah, it's a definitely a technique a, to learn. Yes. It's, it's, it's something else. Yeah. It, 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 it's something else you need to learn and, and basically, um, adapt to because my biggest challenge is the fact that I have, I have feeling in my legs, right? So I can feel my knees. Oh. I can feel I can feel my my pelvic bones. I can feel the bone, but I cannot feel the skin, right? So I can feel mm -hmm. the bone. And so it is very painful being in that chair for so in me. a way that makes it much harder for you. Yes, it's it's something that you have to uh basically zone out the pain from it because it is definitely a distraction because a lot of uh paraplegics that are complete paraplegics, they have no feeling below the waist and in a way you know it's for the sport that's a good thing right, right. but Conversely. yeah yes for me it's um it, it it it's not it was very painful uh learning to to use a chair and even using it it's just something that you need to accept that you're going to have that pain there and um just push through it oh, so you, you just have so much to contend with just yeah. on top of what everybody else contends with in Iron Man, yes, it's just pretty astonishing. Yes, the, the the disabilities that I have are very unique. You know, the, the lack of the stomach is another thing that uh, you mentioned. How do you even do race day nutrition? Yes, exactly. So that that right there is something that I've 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 you know over the years I still haven't perfected it because even in Kona I suffered from it right. So, right. so, um, obviously it's, it's, um, you know, while training for Kona, uh, you know, I have, I have, uh, I have, um, you know, very good discipline with my diet. You know, I can, I can eat very cleanly and I have no problem with it. And actually training, uh, for Kona, you know, you're better off eating clean just because, you know, those nutrients are going for recovery versus, you know, storing them as fat. And so, but the problem with that is you're burning so many calories that when you try to consume the calories that you're burning cleanly, um, without having the stomach, it's, it's, it's basically impossible to get those calories in. And so that was one thing that I, I needed to, um, work through as well is, is, is how do I consume enough calories to have the energy to train, um, without that volume, right? So I needed, mm -hmm. basically I needed, you know, calorie rich, uh, foods and, you know, I couldn't go the route of the, <laughs> the clean diet because it was too much volume. It was too much volume. So I ended up basically eating, you know, junk to get my calories in. <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> that's, uh, the, the, the best solution that I found is, is, is eating junk, you know, calorie rich food and, and, um, and that 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 basically worked, and then the race day uh, nutrition uh, that was another challenge in itself. So I would I would carry my uh, flasks, and they were you know full of uh, I like to use uh, guma gels, hmm. um, and each flask would have about 
uh, eight to nine gels. And so I would carry about three of those flasks. Uh, so roughly about 30 gels. And the thing is, um, it, 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 uh, it was, I was fine on the hand cycle, you know, consuming all these gels on the hand cycle and the fluid on the hand cycle as well. I was fine. But as soon as I got into the run portion, immediately when I got into that position and then I start pushing, which you're basically doing a crunch on the push rim. Mm. Um, every time you push, you're crunching, you're crunching. And in that position, I would regurgitate. So right after the hand cycle, whatever was left in my gut would end up on the floor oh. within minutes of starting the, the, the push rim. And so, so you're basically running on empty. Yes, running on empty, no fluids. For the whole marathon. Yes, no fluids, no no fuel oh. for the whole marathon. Um, so that's another thing that I've had to, you know, uh, adapt to. Uh, I've tried, you know, different fuels during the bike. You know, I've tried, and uh, it's just basically is getting the the run as fast as possible, getting it done because I, even during the run, I, you know, you can't help it. You're dehydrated and you're, you're lacking in fuel and you want to, you know, drink or eat when you pass the, the aid stations. And I would attempt. And, uh, every time I would drink something right away, I would start regurgitating and it would affect my performance. And it's Kona. So it's hot and humid oh. there. So that makes it even more crazy. Yes, definitely. So what was your road to Kona like? Like, um, what's the qualification criteria like for para-athletes and how many spots are available and what's that whole process like? So, um, yeah, they, they make it uh, really difficult for us. <laughs> there is only, <laughs> yes, they, they, there is only four qualifying hand cycle spots around the world. Wow. Wow. Four. There's only four. So is that for like safety reasons or just given how many number of athletes are there totally in the para division? You know, honestly, I, I've been there twice. And what I think it is, is um, where the transition, where transition is, the amount of room we have there. I think that's all they can, they can accommodate, accommodate uh, because it's so tight in there, like, like literally, like there's no room for anyone else, right. I, and that's that's the conclusion that I've came to uh, from my experience there. Because uh, how would you get any more unless you would put the transition somewhere else? Um, but very limited room there. Um, so what I would assume that would be it, because as far as uh, safety, you know, Kona is fairly wide. The road is wide, so I don't see I don't see a problem with with uh, safety. In Kona, so so yeah, so there's four qualifying spots, and there's only three qualifying races around the world. So there's one in Luxembourg, Germany. There's one in Australia. I believe it's in Cairns, Cairns, Australia, the national championship. Mm -hmm. And then there's another one here in the U.S. in Texas, uh, Buffalo Springs lake texas so those are the three qualifying races and because buffalo springs has uh the bigger uh, or, or I, I should say uh, the more competitors come to buffalo springs because it covers you know north and south america um there's two qualifying spots there mm. so so 
in Luxembourg, Germany, you need to win it. In Australia, you need to win it. it. Here in the U.S., it's first and second get to go to Kona. So usually how big is the field? It really, you know, to be honest with you, my first year, I've, I've tried three years. I've attempted Kona three years now. And my first year, it was, um, I'm going to say, about 12 athletes. Okay. And uh, the second year, it was about eight. So this, this year, it was about another eight or ten. So it really varies. Mm-hmm. It really varies from the amount of athletes that, that do it. And, and, you know, I mean, just for a, I guess, I guess you can say, um, just wanting to do an Ironman from a wheelchair is, <laughs> it's, it's extremely, uh, difficult because you're, you're only using your arms for the entire the whole leg of the race. Yes. So it's definitely something that, that you need to, um, the it's, it's just it's no easy task i my respects to to every athlete that in wheelchairs that does this it's a hundred percent oh my god you know that's that's one of the beauties of the sport of triathlon and ironman right that everyone covers the same distance regardless of anything so like how, how does that kind of make you feel that you're doing the same distance that everyone else is and there's no like modifications or anything like that you know, actually, actually, it's 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 motivating. It 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 makes you feel as if you're not disabled. You know, hmm. they're treating you equally. You know, even even on the swim, uh, the Kona swim is is so crazy. Epic. Um, but yes, it's so hectic that you know people don't see that you're disabled in the water so you're getting kicked <laughs> and punched and uh they don't look at you any different in the water um so yeah i i i like the fact that that we cover the same distance and you know a lot of people are motivated by by seeing us pass by them you know during the race actually in buffalo springs buffalo springs lake has a hill that it's about a, I'm going to say, um, I don't know if I'm exaggerating, but like a, a 10, 10 to 15% grade. Oh my Whoa. God, it's so steep, right? And you got to do it twice. <laughs> so so every time I get to this hill, right? And it's funny because I've done Buffalo Springs three times, right? So, so you know what you're in for. <laughs> yes. So I know what I'm in for. But the funny thing is, so so you get around the corner and you're going up this hill, right? And you see all kinds of people walking, right? But as soon as they see me wheeling by them, they start running. <laughs> and so multiple times, you know, I've been told uh, after finishing the race that, you know, thank you for the motivation. You know, you, you got me up that hill. And um that's great. And that's one thing that I like that we, we when people see us on the field, uh, they get motivated. And um, even on the bike, I end up racing with, with uh, evil bodies on the bike um, <laughs> because <laughs> they see me pass, you know, pass them on the bike and then they come and pass me. And then, uh, so I kind of, we get to a small competition <laughs> on the, on the a bike leg. It's, it's, it's uh, motivating. Mm-hmm. So speaking of competitiveness, set us up 
with how your sort of epic showdown um, at Kona, like it, it started in the qualifier, right? Yes. So, so last year, um, I won the national championship in Buffalo Springs, right? So, so I was the returning champion. And so, um, actually, you know, it's funny because, uh, this, this was all, it's all on the quest for Kona documentary, the season two, the whole race. And, and so there oh, was, wow. yes, there was a, an athlete on there that, um, that was being featured on quest for Kona and his, uh, he was a former Marine. And so he was, he was one of my competitors there and his name is, uh, Evan Morgan. So he's a former Marine and, uh, you know, he, he became, uh, uh, injured in a roadside bomb, uh, in, um, Iraq actually. Mm. So, so they were following him on the quest for Kona. And, and so, so he was like, when we were in the athlete briefing and stuff, they had cameras on him. And so it was, it was pretty intimidating. <laughs> um, even though he was a, you know, I was a returning champion, but here's this guy, you know, and he is a fairly big muscular guy. His arms were twice the size of my arms, mm. you know? And, and, and so there was him. And then there was another uh, athlete by the name of uh Diogo Ratacheski from Brazil. So, so I, I I like to do my homework on athletes uh, prior to to um, to going up against them to see you know know their strengths and uh, weaknesses and and as well as my own and and how we how we're going to race that race. Hmm. And so um, I I saw Evan Morgan. He he did um, Oceanside right. And I, I saw his performance in Oceanside, and I said, "Okay, I, this this I got him. Uh, cats in the bag with him, right?" <laughs> and so with uh, Diogo, I saw him, and I said, "Okay, I'm faster on the swim. Uh, he's faster on the bike, but I'm faster on the run." And I said, "Okay, so so um, the game plan was, you know, uh, basically uh, beat him." on the swim as much as possible, gain as much ground on the bike, allow him to, uh, to pass me on the bike and then on the run, take the lead back. Right. So that was the plan. And so the race started and, uh, actually Evan Morgan, uh, surprisingly, he took the lead on the swim. Uh, he finished ahead of me on the swim. And, uh, and then I came behind him. I think I was a minute behind Evan. And, but I was, uh, about 10 minutes ahead of Diogo, right? Mm -hmm. So we get onto the first hill on the hand cycle and, uh, and right away I, 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 I overpass Evan on the hand cycle. So I take the lead on the hand cycle and, uh, two hours into the bike, I see Diogo zooming by me. And this is where I made the mistake of of, uh, racing his race, so to speak. Mm -hmm. I, I just chased him and it's hard not to do. <laughs> yes, exactly. I, I, I chased him and, and, you know, I basically redlined and he still got ahead of me on the bike. I wasn't able to, even, uh, even though I was chasing him, I couldn't keep his pace. And so we get into the run and, uh, I only get to uh, close about a minute on the run. 
And so he ends up beating me on the run as well. So he ends up uh, winning by 15 minutes ahead of me. And so now, you know, fortunately, I, I earned that second uh, place uh, spot. So I earned my Kona. But this was the worst in 20, I believe, 27 years of Buffalo Springs. This was the worst day as far as uh, winds and uh, heat. It was a, a 105 degree weather outside, uh, consistent 105. And the ground was uh, burning at 115 degrees. So when we're on the hand cycle, we're literally on the ground, right? You're much closer. Yes. So you can, that heat is just unbearable. And, you know, the winds, uh, they were so strong. Uh, We had like 40 mile an hour winds, uh, wind gusts, uh, 27 mile an hour uh, consistent winds. And, uh, And I actually witnessed going downhill on the bike, I witnessed a, a, a biker get blown off his bike. Wow. Uh, yes, with, from a crosswind. <laughs> it was insane. I've never seen anything like it. And so that's how strong the winds were. So so it was the worst day in Buffalo Springs, Like, uh, but definitely a race that will get you ready for Kona. I think that's why they, <laughs> they choose that. Win. <laughs> yes, definitely. So same thing, you know, I, I finished the race 15 minutes uh, behind Diogo and we're both going to Kona and even then I, I I was so dehydrated I also needed an IV uh, I had to go to the medical tent uh, after the race uh, to rehydrate and so um, finally recovered and you know now heading into Kona I said to myself I need to improve my bike to be able to beat Diogo at Kona you know I need to put more time into my bike uh, so I cut down on my swim and I cut down on my, on my run and I, I focused on the bike, um, for Kona. And so getting into, um, and, and the reason being is, you know, because you use your arms for every leg of the race, it, the training is, is you can't, it, it's like, you have to tone down on something if you're going to add something else. Just because you're, right. you're yeah. constantly depleting that glycogen in the muscles. And, you know, even if you're aerobic, that, that, that glycogen has to be present. Um, so I, I, I noticed, um, you know, I, I couldn't just add more bike. I had to cut down swim, run, and, you know, that way I could improve my bike. And, and so that was, um, fortunately, I was able to improve the bike going into Kona. And my swim, I maintained my swim my speed on the swim, I maintained it. And, uh, the run, uh, I maintained that speed as well. Uh, so I did improve on the bike. And so going into Kona, I, I, um, I also, you know, actually, uh, prior to race day, I attended, a a meeting with tower 26 and purple patch, mm-hmm. uh, with Jerry Rodriguez and, um, and Matt Dixon, where they, where they, you know, they were coaching the athletes uh, on what to do for race day, and basically they solidified what I was going to do in the race. And they, they basically, you know, they told us race your race, you know, don't race anybody else's race. You know how you trained, you know um, what you're capable of. Don't, don't push above them in order to have the best performance. Hmm. And so 
that just uh you know gave me confidence into into knowing uh what I was gonna do on race day and you know going into uh race day you know sure enough we get into the water uh, it's funny because Diogo uh we were we were next to each other on the swim and then uh he says all right Daniel I'll see you on the bike <laughs> <laughs> and I said, all right, I'll see you on the bike. You know, he knew as well as I knew that he would catch me on the bike. And so we, we, the, the gun goes off. Um, I finished the swim in an hour and 20 minutes and 17 minutes ahead of uh, Diogo. And, you know, um, immediately I get into the bike and, you know, I try to get that, uh, as much of a lead as possible within my ranges without, you know, redlining and, uh, pacing myself. Right. And so I get into, I believe it's about three, almost four hours into the race. And I see Diogo coming from behind and I'm like, Oh, great. <laughs> and he's, coming, he's coming fast. <laughs> he is so fast on the bike. Here's the thing. Okay. There's another athlete there okay, that qualified in, um, he qualified in, 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 in Australia, I believe. Uh, he was a French by the name of Ahmed. And he finished the swim at 108 ahead of me, right? So this guy was uh, 12 minutes ahead of me. Diogo was so fast on the bike that he even passed him on the bike. Wow. Not ahead of, yes. With, he had literally, literally had like a 30-minute uh, lead on Diogo, Ahmed did. And Diogo came and beat us both on the on the bike. So I said, you know, when I saw him passing by, I said, you know what, just I'll see you later. You know, I'll see you on the run. I said to myself, <laughs> and uh, I let him go. You know, that was probably the hardest thing I've ever had to do. I just let him go. I raced my race. And when I got into the transition, you know, I said to myself, okay, if I'm going to catch these guys, I need to get comfortable, you know. Uh, usually in transition, I'll take about three minutes, but you know, I said, okay, I'm going to empty my bladder. I need to get comfortable if I'm going to be, why well, I, I ended up taking 14 minutes in transition. I get out of transition and I begin the chase and right away I regurgitate everything, you know, um, I already knew you know, what was going to happen, you know, so I go and as I'm regurgitating, I'm pushing, I already know the drill and I'm, I'm chasing and I see, I see Ahmed on the, in the turnaround. And I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm closing in on Ahmed. And Ahmed is chasing Diogo now, right? So at about mile 16, I see Ahmed coming out of the energy lab. And I say, wait a second, Ahmed overtook Diogo. So so I said, okay, I'm getting close to Diogo. So I go into, I head into the energy lab. And sure enough, on in a turnaround, I see Diogo. And when I saw him, he was hurting. And, and I said, and, and, but then when he saw me, he like, he, he woke up and he started pushing hard again. Got some energy. <laughs> yes. And I said, okay, the chase is on. Right. And, and so at this point, it's about mile 18 of the 17 mile, 18 of the, of the run. And I'm, I'm hydrated. I have no energy. I'm cramping everywhere. I'm hurting. And, you know, it's so funny. This, this competitiveness comes out of you and, and this anger just came over me and, and I went after Diogo and I said, I'm going to catch you, you know, and sure enough, about mile, we got out of the, the, the energy lab. It was pitch black out there. 
at about mile 20, I, I begin to see him right ahead of me. And so, so I'm closing in on him and that this is where I said to myself, okay, if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna beat Diogo, I'm gonna have to give it everything I have right here. Because in, in wheelchair racing, what happens is you, 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 it's like uh bicycle racing. You get to draft off of your. I was wondering about that. If you can yeah. draft on the run. Yes, you can. You can draft on the run. So, oh, wow. Yes. That changes everything. Yes, it does. So, so I said to myself, I can't allow him to draft off me because if that's the case, he's going to end up beating me. And so I said, no, I'm going to give it everything I have here. And, you know, basically, you know, I knew he was hurting. I was hurting. Um, we were both suffering at this point. And I said, you know, it's going to have to be, I, I got to break him. I have to psychologically break the kid. And so, so, you know, my abs were cramping so bad at that point. I had to stretch my abs out because they, they, they were cramping really, really bad. And, and you know, just, just that, that mental strength just takes over, you know. And when you think you have nothing left, it just comes out of you. And I gave it everything I had with only four miles to go. We were at mile 22, and I pass him, and I never look back. And I I you know, pushed as hard as I can push. And, you know, I never looked back and I'm coming into the, the finish line and I'm still going hard and I cross, you know, and I end up, you know, finishing and, and it, it turns out, uh, I end up beating Diogo by 30 minutes. Wow. Holy cow. Yeah. He, uh, he basically just gave up when I passed him, you know, I must've passed him so fast that, he said, uh, "Forget wow. this. I'm not chasing him." <laughs> and so psychological yeah. warfare. Yes, that's what it was. Exactly what it was. I gave it everything I had. I had nothing left because as soon as I got into the the finish line, I was no longer responsive. I, I couldn't even think. They had to take me into the medical tent. Um, I, I I I was spasming everywhere. I was um, doctors. Uh, hooked me up to IVs and I was spasming, like shivering, like crazy. They thought I was cold. And I said, no, no, I'm not cold. I'm hot. And they threw a blanket over me. And uh -huh. I said, no, I'm hot. I don't want a blanket. You know, it's, and so they, they, you know, they were trying to figure out what was going on. I, I ended up weighing uh, nine pounds lighter than when I started. And they said, if had it been that I had the legs, I would probably be 20 pounds lighter for the race. Wow. And so they they gave me 3,000 ml IVs. They pushed magnesium three to four times and antispasmatic medication until finally they got my <laughs> they got me back to normal. Fortunately, after an hour post race, and um, but yeah, I, I gave it everything I had. I had nothing left for that. Your finish line picture is so yes. epic. <laughs> it's really awesome. It just shows. I think everybody listening definitely has to go and check that out. It's just so great. Yes, it's it's so amazing the rivalry. You know, it's like the kind of like the pro pro feel, right? There aren't that many people, so you know each other very well. Your weaknesses, your strengths, so that, and you obviously have lots of respect for each other. So that makes a really good, you know, competition. Yes, definitely. Awesome. Oh, and Diogo was not happy. <laughs> oh. <laughs> he, he was not, because he's a younger, you know, he's he's significantly younger than me. 
you know, it's funny because uh, Ahmed was even older than the both of us, and he finished ahead of both of us. Wow. So, yeah, it was definitely, you know, it, it, I think it's it's how strong you mentally you can be too. It's just psychological. It's, it, psychologically, it's 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 insane how what part it plays in the race. Yeah. How much you're willing to suffer. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Well, clearly you are a champion. (laughs) Wow. Thank you. And I guess especially on this this category, because uh, normally when you, I mean, the the normal category, I guess you compete against people from your own age group. But here, there's no age group. And uh, like, just like you said, you just ended up beating Diogo, who's much, much younger than you, which in theory... Should help make him you not know, like a faster, have, have a better capacity, but you just beat him by half an hour, right? So there's no, yes, no, no boundaries there. Correct. Yes, it's only one division, all ages. <laughs> so what was that post Ironman time like? It was twelve hours. No, no, I just mean like after the race, kind of because I think that one of the really compelling things about your story is. This doesn't end with this amazing race. Like you took that strength and, and oh yes, did some more really impressive things. Yes, so so um, you know, the work ethic uh, involved in 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 training for Ironman is it's it's insane. The amount of time you need to devote to the sport, the discipline involved, um, it's crazy. So when I got back home, you know, now I felt like I had all the time in the world you know, and, 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 uh, now that I wasn't, you know, training for Ironman. And so I, I, I began to incorporate that work ethic into, into walking again. And it was definitely a challenge because I only have strength in my quadriceps and in my inner thigh. That's it. Hmm. So when I walk, it's basically a balancing act. And so you could imagine, um, fortunately, with the use of the robotic legs, the rebuck, I was able to build those muscles to the point where they could support my weight. Now I could stand, and 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 they could support my. So slowly but surely, I I, I started you know practicing on balancing without the use of uh, crutches or cane or anything. Uh, just just standing. That was the the goal just being able to stand without falling and even from the start i would fall uh, multiple times and then it went from uh you know standing to taking my first step without any any assistance and then it went to two steps and uh, i'm i i probably must have fallen you know upwards of hundreds of times and it's just about you know getting back up and keep trying you know at times i felt like this is pointless i i can't i can't do this this is i I just can't you know a lot of the times you want to you want to tell yourself you can't because it's easier to give up and you know fortunately i didn't ever allow myself to give up and uh sure enough I, i i started taking uh my first steps and little by little you know i increased the distance and um you know, and up until now, I'm still uh, practicing every day, improving my walks, going longer and further every time. And, you know, this is after being stuck in a wheelchair for eight years. 
so you know for those out there that think uh you know it, it, it's over it never is you know as long as you keep uh putting in that hard work and and believing that's very important believing in yourself you know if i would have lost you know my motivation and the belief that something was possible this would have never been possible so it's just uh not listening to what anyone has to say and, and, and knowing what you're capable of and going out there and pursuing it. Love that. Yeah, all those limits that they put on yes. you at the beginning, you've just shattered. Yes. Completely. So now now the goal is to completely get rid of that wheelchair. That's amazing. How long do you think it's going to take? You know, I'm going to be honest with you. I've, I've been, I've, I've gotten, uh, I've gotten uh, rid of it for for almost 24 hours now wow but the thing is the next day i am so depleted that Mm. i could barely hold myself up so now i need to recover from that Mm. and it's kind of like training you know i need to give myself time to heal and then little by little yes i'm I'm building that endurance and adapting to that to that walk because it is extremely uh depleting It, it takes a lot of energy out of me does it take you back to when you couldn't raise your arms over your head? Yes, definitely. Oh my God, it it, it actually takes me back when I was learning how to walk as a as a baby, uh. <laughs> as a toddler. Literally, that's 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 you know, I I that's how I walk. I, I take a few steps, I fall, and get back up. And you have a lot further to fall when you're not two feet yes. tall. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and you know the worst part is. So I don't have glutes, right? Uh, my glutes are atrophied. So literally my, my pelvic bone, my tailbones, they're exposed, right? Mm. So um, it's literally, it's like if you're falling on your elbows. Oh, so, yes, yes. Oh, and, and, that's, oh, and, 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 you know, I'm, I'm, I'm so, you know, lean that, you know, I don't even have fat back there to, to cushion my falls. You don't have a lot of padding. Yes. Yeah, so, so, um. So yeah, so that's another thing I got to be careful of. Just I don't want a broken bone, but <laughs> yeah, I, I, I definitely uh, I, I want to give up that chair, and I, I believe that I will in you know in in you know a few months maybe. Who knows? So fingers I, crossed. I'm I'm curious when you give up that chair, what does that mean for you as a triathlete? Okay, so that's another thing. I actually got on a on a bike in in the gym. Whoa. Oh. Yes. So so what I do is I I use my my shoes, right, to lock me in, mm-hmm. right? And then um because I don't have I don't have any function from the knees down, right? right? So so um so the shoes will lock my feet in. So I'm um ultimately I'm using my quads and my inner thighs to propel the bike and I'm able to do that. So the next step, maybe, you know, getting on a actual bike and being able to propel it with my legs. The only problem will be trying to unlock myself. Uh, oh, right. <laughs> yes, that would be the problem. I'm going to have a few falls there for sure. <laughs> um, oh. But yeah, who knows? Maybe maybe that will be my next goal. Is, is, is I, I did an Ironman as a, as a disabled athlete. Now maybe I can do one. Uh, as an able body wow down the line holy cow yeah (laughs) (laughs) 
I think, like I said at the beginning, there just aren't enough superlatives here. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> totally. All right. I, I know we could talk for hours and we have lots of questions left, but yeah. unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap this up now. Yes. So are there any people or brands that you'd like to give a shout out to? Tower 26, Jerry Rodriguez. Uh, if it weren't for his uh, subscription swim program, um, my swim wouldn't be where I'm at now. Craig Shabort from Able Sport for helping me improve my bike and run and the Challenge Athletes Foundation for their sponsorship. Awesome. And before we ask our last question, tell everyone where they can find you online. It's uh, Pigs Can Fly, I Will Try (laughs) on on Instagram. And then... uh, What was the idea behind that? um, You know, because it it was going to be pigs can fly i will walk right but then i i said well i'm doing triathlon so maybe i'll put in that try but now it's like you know because i, I want to show it's it's you know the making the impossible possible basically ah, you're definitely showing that that's probably the best possible handle like ever <laughs> <laughs> all right and our last question is why do you try despite all these all all you have to adapt in so many ways it, you have to basically suffer in so many ways but you still choose to do the sport why uh, mental health i believe it's it's very important uh, the endorphins we produce in the brain through you know iron man uh, aerobic exercise uh who knows you know i've, I've had very dark uh, moments in my past and um i probably wouldn't be here if it, it weren't for triathlon awesome Wow. All right, Daniel. This thank you so much for coming on the show. Yes, thank you for having me. Yes, thank you so much. Absolutely an inspiration. We can't wait to follow your journey ahead. Thank you so much. And maybe since we have a lot more to talk about, we may, we could get you on the show in the future again. Yes. So definitely. keep in touch. Yes. Yeah, we haven't even heard about your coaching stuff and there's just tons <laughs> yeah, of so much left. <laughs> so yes, much more. Definitely. Awesome. All right, Daniel, thank you. Okay, thank you guys for having me. Take care. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks. Bye. Hello, guys, and welcome to another CCC section, Community Comments with Charles, where we find out what you guys want to hear, what you don't want to hear, and what you like and you don't like. So um, our next uh, comment, this is our second comment ever, for this, we're going straight to St. George, Utah, which is the home of one of my favorite bucket list 70.3 Ironman races in the world. And she says, hey, hot, beautiful people. I just want to say how much I enjoy listening to all the different stories in your podcast. I love the diversity in backgrounds and in levels of ordinary people with extraordinary passion. I feel uplifted every time I hear one of the stories. It fills me with hope to become better at this crazy and wonderful sport. I love hearing how it changes people's lives for good. I love the positive light that we get as we learn that it is okay to be human with the many challenges to face, yet with determination and passion to overcome. That's what you guys are all about, and I love it. So thank you for making it happen. Pura vida. And this comes from at Iron underscore Tika, which is Libby, from St. George, Utah. Thank you very much. We really feel appreciated by this. And guys, as you know, 
Every week we're going to have uh, our triple C section. Leave us uh, our comment, what you guys want to hear, what you don't want to hear, anything you want to say, and maybe next week it could be you. So uh, just uh, before we close down, remember that you can find us on social media, on Facebook, on Instagram, at Humans of Triathlon, obviously, and even on Strava. So guys, peace out, and until next week. Thanks a lot for listening to the show. We hope you're enjoying the guests and conversations we're bringing you here on the Hot Podcast. The show notes for everything mentioned or discussed during the chats can be found on our website, which is humansoftriathlon.com forward slash hot podcast. And thank you all for being a part of this community. We really appreciate it. And be sure to join us again next week where we'll bring you another amazing guest and story from this ordinary but extraordinary world of triathlon. Until then, everyone, keep trying.